I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm delighted to have you tuned into our program today, and especially in this hour, for Dialogue with Lisa Rice. Lisa Rice is the president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance. Many of us believe that housing is a right in this country, or certainly ought to be a right in this country. We'll probe Lisa's take on that in a moment. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 was actually passed in a time of turmoil, conflict, and conflagration in cities all across the nation. Indeed, it took the assassination of Dr. King to finally secure its passage. And yet, 55 years after Dr. King's death, various forms of housing discrimination, segregation, and associated consequences persist. Lisa Rice joins us for the hour for a deep dive into how and why housing is getting tougher, not easier, for so many of our fellow citizens in the richest nation in the history of the world. I'm pleased to welcome Lisa Rice to this program. Lisa, how are you today? Hi, Tavis. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am delighted to have you on this program. I'm glad we've got an hour to unpack uh, some of these thorny issues around the issue of housing. Let me just jump right in and, and, and probe, as I said a moment ago, your view your thoughts on this notion that housing in this country ought to be a right. Um, There are many that believe that. There are many who fight for that every day. Uh, And there are others who see it differently. Uh, Why should housing be a right? If I got to pay a mortgage, you got to pay a mortgage, yada, 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 all kind of arguments. Um, But this notion that in the richest nation in the history of the world, that housing is not a right is troubling for many of us. I pass the microphone to you. Tavis, you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, uh, in the United States, housing is not considered a human right. Uh, It should be, as you've noted. And in fact, the United Nations does consider housing to be a human right. Um, Housing is a necessary, um, um, it's a necessary uh, service that people need. It's one of our um, foundational needs as a human being. Every person needs food. Every person needs air. Every mm-hmm. person needs water. And every person needs shelter. So it is a fundamental right. Uh, now, it's interesting, Tavis, that housing and access to housing is sort of foundational. If you look at the history of the United States, mm-hmm. One of the things that attracted people to come to this nation and to immigrate to what we now call the United States of America is the promise that people would be able to own a piece of land and to have a home for themselves. So you think about it, many European nations landlocked, there was no opportunity for wealth creation no opportunity for them to pass on wealth to successive generations. And one of the promises that the United States held was, or the British, the British um, um, government that was encouraging people to come and colonize this space. Right? The holdout, the promise was, you can own your own home. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the British government set up a system called the Headright System. It offered 50 to 100 acres of land for every person who came to the United States from Great Britain 
and you'd get 50 to 100 acres of land, Tavis, for every person in your household, including slaves. Mm. Mm. So you see housing and home ownership, land ownership, is a part of manifest destiny. Because mm-hmm. the head rights system, after the United States was formed as an official government, the head rights system morphed into the Homestead Act system. And we know that, of course, million, hundreds of millions of acres of land were taken away from Native uh, Americans, from Native peoples, that wealth was transferred to white people, and people of color were not able to access those home ownership and land ownership opportunities. So <clears throat> it's an interesting conundrum. Mm-hmm. No, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you laid out that that backstory, that history. I say all the time, I leave this studio every day smarter than when I came in. And even I did not know the backstory you just laid out about what they were promising in the UK. Uh, it's a fascinating story to hear. Um, and to use your word, um, housing in this country at one point was foundational. Uh, that's a perfect word. It was foundational. Um, further to your point, it was a part of manifest destiny. The problem, as you well know, is that for many of us, it has yet to manifest in our destiny. It ain't happened yet. Uh, And that's why we're having this conversation about whether or not housing ought to be a right in this country. And when we come forward, I want to ask Lisa Point Blank because she agrees with me. You heard her say a moment ago that it ought to be a right. But why isn't it in the richest nation in the history of the world, particularly given what she just said, that it was foundational, that it was part of manifest destiny? I'm not naive in asking this, but I'll ask it anyway. Why then in this country? Is housing not a right? We'll talk, of course, about the the the, the just the sad uh, burgeoning growth of homelessness or houselessness in this country, and we'll connect that to discrimination in housing. Lots to talk about, but we'll we'll commence uh, when we come forward with this question about why housing is not a right in this country. Our guest is Lisa Rice, the president and CEO of the National for Housing Alliance. You're listening to her right now. We're glad about it on Tavis Smiling. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Again, Lisa Rice, I'm grateful for that backstory that you shared with us about the foundational nature of housing in this country. Um, But for you telling us that, it'd be hard to believe it, uh, in part uh, because of the the status uh, of of housing or the lack thereof uh, in our country today for so many of our fellow citizens. But to hear how foundational it was, that it was actually a part of a manifest destiny is really arresting uh, in a variety of ways, which we might get a chance to interrogate as we move through this hour. All of that said, why do you believe, given what you said, <laughs> that it was foundational, that it's a part of manifest destiny, that we are in 2023 in the richest nation in the history of the world and housing is not a human right? It's not a right. No, it's not a right, and um, it's really a travesty that it is not. And, Tavis, I think, the, quite frankly, the reason it is not mm-hmm. is because those with the power to exact policy in our nation really view assets and opportunities from a zero-sum game. Mm. That is... Right. There are limited assets. There are limited resources. And the people who are more well healed in this society 
want to hoard those assets and hoard those resources. Mm-hmm. So, it, and and even if you think about it in terms of not just policymakers, but people who already have wealth and already have resources. So think about a neighborhood or a community comprised of single-family homes. Everybody has their own lot, right? They have their, their yard, their home. One of the ways to increase access to housing opportunity is to allow um, more affordable housing developments in those kinds of communities. Mm-hmm. But it becomes actually the people who live in those neighborhoods and communities that themselves oppose the development of affordable housing units in their in their neighborhoods and their communities. So you see, people think, well, wait a minute, I have this asset, it is my home, it's my source of wealth. If I allow an affordable housing development to come in my community, it's going to impact my individual wealth. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a misnomer. It's a myth. It's been disproven over and over again. But it's a it's a narrative that has really stuck. So so let me let me let me let me let me let me, uh, let me jump in right quick. So uh, I'm a property owner. You're a property owner. Many most listen to this program. I suspect right now, many certainly are property owners. Um, and if there were a development, we're talking now about affordable housing. Let's just it could be it could be anything. If there were anything that the city, the county, whoever wanted to develop in my neighborhood. And I thought it was going to lower my property value. I might have a legitimate response to why I don't want that development, whatever it might be, coming into my neighborhood. I, I, that might be legitimate because I've worked hard, particularly particularly if I'm an African-American. I have worked hard to get this piece of the American dream. And I don't want anything coming into my neighborhood that's going to lower my property value. As you well know, home ownership is the way that most Americans get on the path to creating wealth. It's certainly true for African-Americans. So if there were a project, I'm just playing devil's advocate, coming into my community that would run the risk uh, of reducing my property value, I might be opposed to that as well. I thought I heard you say, though, that 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 narrative is is a myth that that that's a misnomer if i heard you correctly then uh, unpack that a bit for uh, a bit more for me if you will yeah yeah tavis you're exactly right um and in fact i mean i'll i'll give you i'll share a personal sure. story with you i live in a new housing development i live in the district of columbia mm-hmm. Um, which used to be Chocolate City, no longer is. No longer is. Gentrifying like crazy, but I digress. Go ahead, go ahead. It, it is indeed. And uh, the community that I live in, it's a new development. So my house is five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made friends with lots of people in the community. And one evening, some friends, some neighbors, and I had gotten together for dinner and the subject of a new affordable housing complex came up because the city of uh, the District of Columbia wanted to place a multifamily affordable housing uh, facility right in the middle of our community, our newly developed community. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody in the group except for me was opposed to the development. 
mm. everybody. Mm-hmm. For the reason that we just talked about, yeah. they said it's yeah. going to bring down our property values. I have worked hard. I'm out here, you know, to quote Prince, working up a black sweat. Mm-hmm. And you tr- you're trying to bring my property <laughs> values down. <laughs> Uh, for, 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 for the record, for the record, as this audience probably already suspects, given how how close friends we were, anybody quoting Prince on my program is okay by me. So you you just you just got brownie points, Lisa. Just quoting Prince, but go ahead. So so Tavis, I have a side sidebar story to tell you about that, but yeah, and so because of my profession and because we study this all the time. I was able to share with my, my neighbors mm-hmm. that that actually is not the case. This affordable housing development will not break down the property values in our home, in our neighborhood. And of course I was right. The mm-hmm. development went forward. Tavis, my house I bought five years ago has appreciated at almost a, a value that is 50% higher than mm. what I bought it for mm-hmm. five years ago. I mean, the, the the value of our home has appreciated well above the national average. And so, but this sort of myth has been perpetuated down through history. And I, I'm sorry to say it is a racist concept. Mm-hmm. It's a racist construct. Mm-hmm. Because it is the argument that predominantly white communities used to oppose the building of affordable housing so that black people would be able to move into um, um, diverse communities, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that, But that narrative has stuck. And we haven't been able to really promote accurate narratives to be able to educate people and make them aware um, that, no, your property value won't go down if you allow maybe, an affordable housing development to come into your maybe community. The, maybe the question I should ask, and trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a two seconds to tell you a print story in a moment. Let me do this first, and I want to hear your print story. So we'll, we'll, we'll do that, I promise. Um, but maybe the question I should ask is, how we define what you mean when you say affordable housing, because again, to your point, that narrative has stuck uh, for, for a long time that if you are a single home owner and you uh, allow an affordable housing project to come in your neighborhood, it's going to decrease your property value. You just, you just, you just, you know, you just, you just arrested that, that lie with the story you told about what happened in your neighborhood. So we know that not to be true. And yet the narrative persists and people are scared of allowing any sort of development that has affordable housing attached to it coming into their neighborhood. So maybe the question is, what do we mean when we say affordable housing? Maybe they maybe they don't know what they are afraid of, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think a lot of times people think when they hear affordable housing, they think of, you know, Cabrini Green mm-hmm. uh, and those kinds of um, conventional housing. We, we used to call them the projects mm-hmm. back in the day, right? I think that's what people think about. And that's not what we're talking about because that old construct has really been um, ripped asunder. We don't build affordable housing like that anymore. In fact, what we build is multiple multi-income housing. So we build uh, housing developments so that you, you've got a couple of units available for very low-income people. You've got other units for moderate-income people. You've got units for middle-income people and then units for uh, high-income people. So the income is mixed. Mm-hmm. The income is mixed. And that's really the best strategy, uh, Tavis, 
because when you when you concentrate poverty, you're concentrating uh, you're concentrating a lack of opportunity. You're mm-hmm. concentrating right the the devoid or the disinvestment of a particular community, which mm-hmm. is not what we want to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I get that stratified nature, and and, and I'm 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 going out here on a limb right now. Um, but I would assume if we believe the narrative, uh, the notion, and I do that uh, when you when you uh, when you know better, you do better. Uh, if we believe the notion that if you can see it, you can believe it, and if you can believe it, you can achieve it. All these sort of affirmations that we that we uh, pass around all the time. If we truly believe those things, it would seem to me that if you have an affordable housing project where there is, where there is this sort of financial stratification, you got low, you got middle, you got high income, but all in this particular, uh, in this same area, uh, living together, I would think that those people are on the bottom rung. Uh, but uh, but uh, but afforded the opportunity to live in this community can see better, and ultimately they will do better. It ain't like they're gonna bring the other folk down; they're gonna come up. Am I right or wrong about that? You're absolutely right about that. And so, can I also say too that this whole notion that we're talking is like nimbyism, if you will. Sure. It, it's a it's a manifestation of colonization. Before you before you go forward, let me I, I like make sure we're on the same page. It's a great word, nimbyism. I think most in this audience understand what you mean, but NIMBY stands for not in my backyard. Continue, Lisa Rice. Yeah, not in my backyard. This so it, it's a it's a racist construct. It really is a manifestation of colonialization in the United States, and this. It, it, this myth that people in the United States who have wealth got it by their own hard work mm-hmm. and sweat equity. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's a bold-faced lie, right? You know, people who immigrated to the United States from European nations in the late 1700s and the, the 1600s, 1700s, etc., <clears throat> they didn't come here and purchase land and amass land uh, and, and have the ability to build homes and to build um, farms and estates doing all of that hard work themselves. That's not how it happened, right? The, if you go back to the, the colonial period, the British government had a military situated here, right, in the British colonies, that military was waging war against Native populations and commandeering their land mm-hmm. and then giving it to the European settlers. So it's not those, those settlers weren't coming over here yeah. and, and just getting <laughs> land that was free for the taking. No, the land was being commandeered. It was being taken over through violence, by a state-funded entity, namely the military. Mm -hmm. Roads and bridges were built by the military. Land, whole swaths of land, uh, was cleared and developed by slaves, free labor. Mm -hmm. Right. So, So people got tons of support in order to amass that land and amass that wealth, 
And then when you come closer to more recent history, our federal government enacted policies that supported home ownership opportunities for white consumers or white residents in the United States while denying those same opportunities for black, Latino, Native American, and other people of color in the United States. So black folks, Latino folks, they're paying taxes. Our taxes were being used to support home ownership for our white brothers and sisters while we ourselves were not able to access those opportunities. Mm. Right. The GI Bill is a great example of that. Sure. No, oh, I I, I love I love this backstory. Um, um, I, I didn't know it was going to get this deep, uh, but I love this backstory. Here we are talking uh, in this hour with Lisa Rice, uh, President and CEO of the National for Housing Alliance, about whether or not housing ought to be a right in this country, whether housing will ever be a right in this country. But in the interim, what do we do about the increasing um, houselessness and homelessness of people, oftentimes who look just like you and me? Uh, and um, what about housing discrimination? What is to be done about that all these years later in the richest nation in the history of the world? So a lot uh, more uh, to, uh, to unpack uh, when we continue our conversation with uh, with Lisa Rice. I haven't even gotten yet to the, to the again, the houselessness part of this uh, or, or homelessness part of this. We haven't gotten to discrimination. Um, we got the, again, we back in 68, 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act and we made some progress, uh, but when you look around today at the at the conundrum um, that so many people are in because they cannot afford a home, they can't afford a house, um, it's a conversation that could not be more propitious, and I'm delighted to have it in this hour on this day with Lisa Rice. When we come forward, before we jump back into the conversation about housing, I'm going to hear her print story. I love hearing print stories. Everybody's got one. So we'll hear Elisa's print story when we come forward and jump from there. You are listening to Lisa Rice on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Tavis Smiley, and I'm delighted to have you tuned in to our program today and in this hour, especially. So um, I let Lisa Rice, I told Miles, my board op, ask Lisa what Prince song she wants to come back with, uh, and that's what we'll play. Everybody's got their favorites. Uh, hard to pick one, but this is the one that Lisa chose as a setup to tell the story, her, her Prince story. Everybody's got one. Here we are talking about housing discrimination. In the middle of that, she drops a Prince reference, and she says, and by the way, I got a story about that. So, uh, Lisa, while we let Prince ride, you tell us your Prince story, and we'll get back to fair housing in America. 
Oh, Tavis, I love it. I'm loving it. And really, my Prince story is about you. Oh, wow. Okay, it I did, is, didn't see is. didn't see that coming. Go ahead, go ahead. You didn't see that coming, did you? I did not. <laughs> so, Tavis, I don't know if you even remember this, but you and I met over 20 years ago. We did a, a country, across-the-country tour with Nationwide Insurance Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, educating communities of color about financial opportunities and business opportunities. And you actually used to tell the story about how you encountered lending discrimination. So that's how you and I first met. Mm -hmm. So I knew way back then how much you loved Prince, and I did too, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So my Prince story was way about you. That was over 20 years ago. I was like 19. Mm -hmm. I don't know how old you were. (laughs) (laughs) As as my my big mama used to say, we're going to leave that lay where the good Lord done flung it. We're going to leave that right where it is. We're going to leave it lay where the good Lord done flung it. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fa- and I'm actually exaggerating. I was not that cute, but <laughs> yeah, I knew that part too. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm laughing only because, again, in the conversation about housing, you never know. That's why I love black people. I just love black people. There ain't nothing they can do about it. You, you talk about one thing, and you, you connect to something else, and you get reminded of a story that you'd forgotten about, and somebody you met 20 plus years ago, traveling the country. I remember this nationwide tour. I was honored to be a part of it. Uh, again, talking to people about all of these issues that matter, and I, I I'm kind of, I'm kind of smiling, and I, I say this with humility. But every one of us, I say this all the time, Lisa. All we know is what we're giving. We never know what people are receiving. And every one of us, whether we admit it or not, we all want to be acknowledged. We want to be respected. We want to be, we want to be loved, and we want to be affirmed. I believe those things are part of the human condition. And when you have somebody come on your show and they remind you of something you did 20 years ago when you were trying to love and serve your own people um, in this project with Nationwide, it, 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 it lets you know that, that you've tried to do something right in your life. You tried to help somebody along the way. Uh, and that you and I were connected in that project uh, just uh, brings joy to my heart uh, and uh, a smile on my face to know that uh, you and I were doing it then and we're continuing to do it now. I'm doing it. I'm doing it as best I can, sitting in this seat every day, trying to empower, enlighten, and encourage our our audience. And you are doing it as the president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance. So it's just a beautiful full circle story. And uh, the the fact that Prince is at the epicenter of it is a beautiful thing. So I, I'm glad you shared that, and I'm glad to, I'm glad we got a chance to play your song. Um. Uh. So so Diamond and Pearls. That's your thing, right? That's my thing. Okay. That is my thing. Okay. And I forgot your favorite Prince song because they used to play it sometimes when you would come out. You know, I they, 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 I remember that now. Now that you remind me, so yeah, they played they played a number of Prince songs when I when I would come out. And I and my my favorite changes by the, by the week. I mean, I have so many. I, I haven't been stuck with one uh, for years. I, for for a long time. Um, uh, I was stuck on "Baby I'm a Star" uh, for 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 years, uh, and 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 people sleep on that track because you have to hear the words. You might not know it now, but "Baby I'm a Star," and for all Indeed. the years, for all the years that I was on the come up, I, that was my song. You might not know it now, but "Baby I'm a Star." And I'm working my way there. Uh, and so uh, for a long time, that was my theme song. Uh, but uh, there's so many, so many. I mean, obviously, I mean, I love diamonds and pearls, but. When I'm talking about we talking about Prince ballads, for me, ah, you you can't do better than a door. 
I mean, I was just getting ready to say, you can't do better adore. than that. Yeah, I mean that's that's. I mean, Diamonds and Pearls. Is, I mean, it's an amazing track. And again, Prince and I would have these conversations all the time, um, and laugh and giggle. But um, for an artist, you know, they they don't have a favorite. I mean, everything they do. I mean, you you ask an artist, any artist, their favorite is the next thing they're working on. That's their favorite. <laughs> the one that the one they're working on now, that's about to drop. But I think your Prince were here, and he understood that. Uh, of all of his ballads, he knew full well that Adore was was the track that everybody adored. And so he wouldn't be offended by that. Trust and believe. Trust and believe. So I'm glad we had that I, Prince moment. I, I know that's the truth. Adore is my wake-up song. I wake up to Adore every morning. Wow. Every morning. That's your song. Mm-hmm. That's my song. Okay. It's between that and diamonds and pearls. Okay. Well, there, 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 there are worse way. There are worse ways to wake up, and there are certainly uh, a lot lesser tracks to wake up to. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to know that. Now, let me let me pivot back to where we were. Now we've taken that that Prince uh, adulation break. Uh, let me get back to what we were talking about, and that is this notion of of of, of, of fair housing and and why it's not fair. Frankly, I don't know why we call it fair housing because it ain't fair. Uh, certainly for people who look like like you and me. Uh, but there are a few things I want to interrogate. Now I got to move more swiftly. We've taken five minutes talking about Prince. I got to jump ahead now to uh, cover things that we haven't gotten to. Um, what do you say uh, first, Lisa, about the ongoing segregated nature of housing in this country? I, we, well, I was talking to a guest the other day uh, from Chicago, and we're we're heard in Chicago on WVON, uh, and they know in Chicago and. Anybody been in Chicago knows. If you've been there, you know this. Chicago is an amazing city, a great city, one of my favorite cities, and yet it is still one of the most segregated cities in America. And Chicago ain't the only one. How is it that after passing the Fair Housing Act of 1968, housing in this country is still so segregated? I'm glad you asked me that question, Tavis. So what we often forget is that throughout the entire history of the nation, we have passed literally thousands, thousands, of race-based, race-conscious laws that provided opportunities for whites while, and those laws were designed to deny opportunities for blacks and other people of colors. Mm-hmm. We talked about the Homestead mm-hmm. Act, the Homeowners Loan Corporation Act, the Federal Housing Act, the National Highway Act the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Jim Crow laws, the exclusionary zoning ordinances, urban renewal. So we have passed literally thousands of laws at the federal, local, and state level that not only were designed to deny opportunities to people of color, but were designed to foment and create and foster segregation. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So we created segregation is not a natural construct. It, it is design. We are segregated by design. That's right. We are more segregated today than we were a hundred years ago. Mm. So all of these, these laws and policies that we put in place over the centuries, they've created what we call systems of inequality. And those systems of inequality are still with us today and, and those systems are, of inequality are still perpetuating yeah. discriminatory and disparate outcomes. And residential segregation is one of them. That's why I say all the time, Tavis, where you live matters because segregation is a bedrock of in, in, uh, inequity uh, across the United States. So if you give me your address, Tavis, I can 
basically predict everything about you. I can predict your wealth. Mm. I can predict whether you're a home. I can tell you your credit score. Mm -hmm. I can tell you your level of of education. I can tell you your chances of being incarcerated. I can tell you how long you're going to live. All all based on your zip code. On your address because place is inextricably linked to opportunity. When we come forward uh, with Lisa Rice, I want to ask her, given what she just laid out so brilliantly and so eloquently, talk about black home ownership uh, and what she makes of it. Fair Housing Act passed in 1968. What's her assessment of black home ownership all these years later? And why is it that black people, every time I look up, I see some other other news story, some new news story about somebody black whose house got underappraised and then they whitened it and it got upgraded. Why does that persist? We're talking with Lisa Rice, President and CEO of the National for Housing Alliance on Tavis Smiling. This is getting good. Tavis Smiling continues when we come forward. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiling. So we passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968. I'm afraid to ask this question, Lisa Rice, but I'm watching my time trying to do things quickly now here. I'm afraid to ask, but what is your assessment of uh, black home ownership all these years after the passing of that act, that that uh, historic act in 1968? Well, Tavis, I actually have good news for you there. Woo, uh, because okay. <laughs> we're, we're working on a lot of equitable um, um policies and programs to help support black homeownership. So you're absolutely right. The black homeownership rate has been falling since the Great Recession. But because of equity-based provisions we've been able to put in place under the Biden-Harris administration, Mm -hmm. we have seen for the first time the black homeownership rate increase. So the black homeownership rate has been increasing since 2020. Mm-hmm. And and that's a positive thing. And, and again, it's because of the equity-based provisions put in place by the Biden-Harris administration. Now, the bad news is, if we don't continue the implementation of these equity-based provisions, special purpose credit programs, things like that, first-generation down payment programs, not first-time homebuyer, programs. First time homebuyer programs exacerbate racial inequality. First generation home buyer programs will close the racial homeownership gap. But if we're not able to continue with these kinds of programs, then we will see a widening of the the racial you know, uh, homeownership gap. I'm glad to see, I'm glad to hear uh, that good news. Uh, uh, good news don't doesn't come often enough this way <laughs> uh, by, by black people, that is. So I, I celebrate any good news we can get. But it, but should it really take all that? I mean, I'm glad these programs are working, but what does it say about our nation? I'm not naive even asking this. What does it say about our nation that it takes all of that, Lisa, to get a to get an uptick in black home ownership? Yeah, Tavis, it takes that, that and more. So think of it this Man. way. All of our systems and structures are inequitable. Every system and structure, even our even our technologies that are used in the housing and finance space, credit scoring systems, automated underwriting systems, risk-based pricing systems, 
they all generate bias. So you have to have these these equitable provisions mm-hmm. that can mitigate against that that system that is inherently biased. Yeah. You got to have a way to circumvent these biased systems. Yeah. So that's why these kinds of programs no, are it. necessary and we need more than that. We need to we need to generate 5 million new net new black homeowners in order to close the homeownership gap. We're only going to do that with these equity-based yeah. provisions. Speaking of inherent bias, when we come forward in our remaining moments with Lisa Rice, I want to get her take. Uh, and again, we see these stories all the time. It's like it, it, they're perennial, right? Um, every day you look up, there's some new story about some black homeowners, some black homeowner or homeowners whose houses were underappraised until they de-blackenized their home. Uh, and then the value goes through the roof. Again, anybody naive around here or, or stuck on stupid, but that just seems so outrageous in 2023. I digress. More, more with Lisa Rice when we come forward. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Lisa, I've enjoyed this immensely. I've got two minutes left, and I've got two questions. So you got 60 seconds for each. The first is, um, speaking of inherent bias, why are black folks still getting played on these appraisals? The appraisal system is inherently biased, and that's why we're working with government entities like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development to change and overhaul the appraisal system so that it is uh, fair for homeowners of color. That's just the, the sad state yeah. of affairs, Travis. Yeah. And finally, um, when you do work, uh, the kind of work that you do every day as the president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance, how do you process, how do you navigate uh, every day knowing that increasingly uh, across this country, in big cities and small towns, black folk are the face of the unhoused? Tavis, look, when we fight, we win. Mm-hmm. So that's why I do what I do. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving in. I, uh, my parents were civil rights activists. I had a cousin who was assassinated. He was a youth organizer for Dr. King, my mother's first cousin. Mm. I, I fight because I stand on the shoulders of people like him and others who fought so that I could have, so that we could have the opportunities that we have. So I'm fighting so the next generation can have more opportunities than I had. Mm. And we, we have to have that mindset. Nope, you are right. And, and, and people need to know when we fight, we win. Tavis, we bring, as you know, we bring civil rights lawsuits all of the time. And we haven't lost a case. Mm. When we fight, we win. But we got to make sure we're, we're doing high quality work. That's the phrase of the day. When we fight, we win, but we have to do high quality work. And that's true, not just for Lisa Rice, but for every one of us listening right now. When we fight, we win, but we cannot escape our, our calling to do high quality work. And she is. She's the president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance. She is Lisa Rice. Lisa, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Thank you for uh, uh, for, for the for the Prince moment. <laughs> and you have a great rest of the so day. Thank and, you, Chad. Happy holidays to you, Lisa. All the best to you. Happy holidays to you, too. Be blessed. When we come forward, the brother who runs the L.A. Times. That's high cotton, as we say around here. His name is Kevin Merida. You'll hear from him for the hour in a moment on Tavis Smiley. <laughs> 